Welcome to the next edition of the P5 podcast. I'm fortunate today to be sitting here across country or across New England with Peter Spector, the co-founder of uh, Cormap, which is a company in which, full disclosure, I invested in their recent round. And Cormap is doing very uh, innovative technology uh, in ablation. And so thank you, Peter, for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. So full disclosure as well, um, I have a personal story around this, which I'll get to later, uh, but I'd love you to just briefly introduce what the company is, and then I'd love to go back in your history because you have a very, very interesting history in and around this subject matter. Sure. Um, so um, CoreMap is... Uh, a company that is essentially a vehicle for the development of um, what's called a mapping system. So it's it's a way that we can um, put catheters, which are which are wires, uh, into an IV, and we can uh, thread that wire um, along the vein, and the wire will go where the vein goes, and veins go to the heart, and so you can get wires inside the heart without having to open the chest, no knives involved in this procedure. Um, and what we really can't do in 2020 and what CoreMap is, um, is aiming at doing is use recordings from uh, electrodes inside the heart of patients um, with a particular rhythm called atrial fibrillation, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, but use those recordings to identify exactly where in the heart um, this, this abnormal rhythm is being driven so that you can guide what's called ablation, which is a way of delivering electric cautery through the very same wires, um, to fix, uh, to fix the rhythm. So atrial fibrillation is, a it's the most common abnormal heart rhythm out there. I think there's like 33 million people in the world that have atrial fibrillation. Um, <clears throat> so you almost certainly, uh, in fact, I know that you do know somebody who has atrial fibrillation, but everybody knows somebody with atrial fibrillation. Um, and it's uh, a loss of organization to the electrical activity of the heart. So normally, you know, our heart has one job. It needs to squeeze and act as a pump to pump blood around the body. And the way that it's able to squeeze is uh, you can think about the heart like it's a brick building. And um, if if all the bricks in a building got smaller at the same time, then the building would get smaller and the volume inside the building would get smaller. And if there were blood in it, it would get pumped out. Use a terrible analogy. Um, and the role of electrical activity in all this is it's the electrical activity that coordinates the shrinking of the bricks. So the bricks are heart muscle cells. And when they're electrically excited, they contract and the heart pumps. And if the electrical activity that tells them to do that is uncoordinated, then some cells are contracting while other cells are relaxing and it just kind of wriggles, but the volume inside never changes and it stops effectively pumping. Um, so that's what atrial fibrillation is. Um, it's a very complex and chaotic rhythm. And to date, we really don't have a way to go into a specific patient and say, ah, okay, in this person, this is where the AFib is coming from. And I think we need to do our cautery over here and over here, um, as opposed to some other patient where we have to go over there and over there. Um, 
it's not that we have no way to treat atrial fibrillation in 2020, um, but we use uh, what, for lack of a better term, I would call a one-size-fits-all approach, um, but it doesn't fit all. So we do the same thing in every patient. We, electrophysiologists around the world, do the same ablation in, in every patient, and it works for some and it doesn't work for others, and we can't use electrical recordings to do a better job. Um, so yeah, that, solving that problem. Yeah, so that that that's the, the personal story for me was, and this is 18 years ago, is my father uh, wound up in AFib and he had four ablations, uh, none of which were successful and ultimately had a pacemaker put in. So I've actually been in a lab and watched the technician, you know, from the room next door. And, um, it's, it's quite a procedure. Uh, it's, it's relatively, I would say probably from an outsider looking in relatively simple, but far from easy, um, and far from easy to be effective. What, what percent of people are eligible if they have AFib and how do you define that? And then, and, and what percent are actually helped by it if they do have the procedure? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. <clears throat> so it turns out that, um, fibrillation is a progressive disorder. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, if you think about, um, healthy electrical activity, uh, you don't have atrial fibrillation. And as the electrical properties of your heart become somewhat deranged, um, you can develop the capacity to have fibrillation. And what people typically will have in the beginning is short bursts of fibrillation lasting maybe minutes or hours um, and stopping on its own. And then they'll have another episode and it stops on its own. Um, that's the early stage of atrial fibrillation. But <clears throat> what happens fairly uniformly is that um, the process of fibrillating itself causes further electrical derangement in the atrium and makes the atrium an ever more conducive place for fibrillation. So once it gets started, it, it's not as likely to stop. And your episodes, instead of being an hour at a time, become a day at a time or a week at a time. And ultimately, you get to the stage with this sort of negative feedback loop where you're in fib all the time. Um, and the doctors have to maybe shock your heart um, to get you out of fibrillation. And then uh, the final stage is where we sh you shock the heart and you just can't get it out of fibrillation. People are stuck in atrial fibrillation. So if you think about that continuum, the successful ablation for AFib got its start in the very early, not very deranged patients. So people that are just having intermittent episodes that stop on their own, what's called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And that represents a, <clears throat> a pretty small minority of the patients out there. It's, I think of all the patients with fibrillation, even if the entire group, uh, no matter how severe, is 33 million worldwide, um, the percentage of those patients that are undergoing ablation worldwide currently is, I think, like one, one point something percent. So the vast majority of patients are not, not even going to the, uh, to the EP lab, it's called, to have an ablation in the first place. And of the ones who do go, there is a little bit of a mix of the very early AFib, which is where we started, and doctors are getting more aggressive at treating um, patients when they get a little farther down the road. So for the early AFib, the success rates are pretty good. You know, maybe about 85% um, of patients can be cured with an ablation. There's a little bit of fine print, which is that for technical reasons, 
it's not uncommon to require more than one procedure to be fixed. So if we say fix 85% of the paroxysmal patients, um, the single procedure success rate is closer to 50%. So it's common for people to have to go back more than once. But ultimately, we fix about 85%. As FIB progresses, you know, there are success rates that are closer to 50% or less, no matter how many ablations you do. And, uh, and patients who've been in long enough, we don't even bother to bring them to have the procedure because the likelihood of success is so low. And, you know, if you look at those numbers, it's the vast majority that aren't candidates for ablation. And that's who we're trying to um, figure out how to fix. And how let's spend a little more time, just flush this out. And I would like to, and think it's helpful people to go back with your history a little um, and his, and how this is all and how your career progressed and why, but just, so, so what are you, what, what is Cormac Cormap effectively doing? Uh, so we have, um, we've made a new type of uh, electrode, uh, design and electrode array. So in fact, it's 128 electrodes uh, that are very, very small that uh, will go on the end of a catheter that you you put in the vein and thread up into the heart. And due to the the characteristics of the design of these electrodes, um, they are able to look at the electrical activity from a very, very small region of the heart immediately beneath the electrode to the exclusion of the electrical activity around it. Um, and it turns out that this feature, which we call spatial resolution, meaning the area that's contributing to our recording is very small, uh, is a critical feature um, to successfully map atrial fibrillation. So one of the problems with AF is that um, it's what we call spatially complex, it, meaning that the electrical activity here is dissociated from the electrical activity right there, right next door, where normally you'd have a nice... Um, organized wave that travels <clears throat> through the atrium, <clears throat> whereas in FIB, you can have cells that are pretty close to each other that are that are electrically independent. If you record from a large enough area with lots of independent excitations, you just get a very, um, what's called a fractionated signal. You get a lot of spikes, you know, instead of, you know, the way electricity works is when there isn't a wave going past your electrode, you have a flat signal on like an oscilloscope. And when a wave does go by, you see a blip on your oscilloscope. Um, what happens in FIB is you see just almost continuous blips. Um, it turns out that if you can uh, design electrodes with high spatial resolution, which is what we've done, you can filter out all of those blips except for the ones that are coming from immediately beneath you. And it allows you um, to identify um, precisely what's happening, even though FIB is complex. So our system is this catheter um, and the electrodes on the catheter. That then goes into um, a, an amplifier where the signals, which are actually very, very small, get amplified so they're bigger and goes into a, a computer, what's called a mapping system. And that's a system that allows us to do two things. One is it allows us to see the electrical activity and to do analysis on that electrical activity that we can talk about further later. But that analysis is what allows us to say, ah, here's where the FIB is coming from. And part of, part of uh, the key to the ah, here's where FIB is coming from is, is the electrical activity and the where is here. You have to know where you are in 3D space. So we 
have a location sensing system so that we know where our catheter is. Um, and we can say, you know, now we're recording the site where it's coming from and this is where we are. You need to go and do your ablation here. Got it. And okay. So I'd like to go back to your history a little. Um, sure. How you got into this part of the field and your origin story, so to speak, because it's, <laughs> sure. I, I think many listeners will like it. Okay. So, um, I, um, interestingly, you know, I, I've always been, um, one who feels like, uh, you really need, if you can really understand something deeply, that understanding can be leveraged, um, for treatment, for cure, diagnosis, and treatment, um, <clears throat> as opposed to, for example, or in in complement to um, much more epidemiologic approaches to medicine, like where we say, "Look, we had a thousand patients, and in five hundred we did this, and five hundred we did that, and this five hundred did better, so therefore this does better." Um, that doesn't come with an explanation; it's just an observation and a fact. The, this does better than that. I'm much more interested in um, in using a deep understanding of something to figure out exactly what we ought to be doing. Um, and that really attracted me, uh, very, very early in my career. In fact, I was only six months out of my training, um, working at the university of Massachusetts. Uh, when the, I went to a course that was put on by a guy named Sonny Jackman, Warren Jackman, who's at the university of Oklahoma. And Dr. Jackman invented um, radiofrequency ablation. So this approach of just putting catheters into the heart and destroying tissue to fix abnormal rhythms um, was developed by this guy. And in addition to the fact that he revolutionized the treatment of abnormal heart rhythms, which by the way, comprise many things more than just atrial fibrillation. AFib is only one of the many abnormal rhythms. Um, he is very much a like-minded thinker. You know, he really he was so successful and he taught the world so much because he, he, he learned an enormous amount about how electrical activity works in the heart and how you could make use of that information. So I went to his course and, uh, it was a six day intensive course. There was probably only about 10 people there. Uh, as is my wont, I never shut up during those six days. And as a result, luckily for me, Sonny got a good feel for me and how I think. And I returned home and I got a phone call from Sonny um, recruiting me to come out to work at the University of Oklahoma and specifically to, um, to do nothing but ablation and research, um, which I promptly did. <clears throat> and um, when I got out there, just to put this sort of in a timeline of fibrillation, when I was in training... Um, there was no such thing as ablation for atrial fibrillation. The feeling was um, there are other abnormal rhythms out there that are organized and um, are accessible to being diagnosed and fixed with catheters. And that's, that's what Sonny brought to the field. Um, but at, when I was in training, the feeling was fib was just, you know, the horse is out of the barn. It's too complex. We don't, we don't know what to do about this. There's nothing to be done. Um, and so in my training, which was, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine residency, two years of general cardiology, and two years of electrophysiology. So I was in training until I was like 88. Um, we never did an AF ablation. No one ever did one. And just as I got to Oklahoma, 
is when the very first ablation procedures were being reported. Um, and it was, de- it was a procedure developed in Bordeaux, France, by uh, some very bright people, Michel Hassaguer and Pierre Jay, uh, in particular. And, um, you know, we felt like we wanted to, to get in on the action, if you will, um, and people were not yet doing the United States. So uh, there was a group of uh, faculty from University of Oklahoma that went to Bordeaux to learn the procedure and bring it back to the U.S., um, uh, making us one of a handful of places in the U.S. that were going to start to do this. And Sonny got sick um, right when it was time to go. And I was super junior faculty, but I went in his stead. Um, so I only got the opportunity because he was sick. And um, and when we came back and started doing a lot of AF ablation uh, in Oklahoma, I guess because he sort of hadn't quite started it, he never really was that interested in it. And it became uh, my thing, not only my thing, but it, it was my entire focus. Um, and that's how I got my start in in clinical AF. And it, it's been a, a very interesting road because, I mean, you could say fairly literally, we, the, the field, were making it up as we went along. You know, we had these very bright guys in, in France that figured out, you know, a, a handhold and how we could get started on AF ablation. But from that initial observation, we were all just kind of making it up as we went along, figuring out how we could do a better and better and better job. Um, and that, you know, having a ringside seat to the development of all this stuff and sort of understanding, you know, we did this and then we realized that. And so we evolved into the next thing and the next thing uh, has been extremely useful um, for developing my ideas about atrial fibrillation. Um, so I'll take a break there (laughs) without going on too much farther, but that's how I got my start in AFib and it, and it hasn't stopped yet. How, how do you know the cause of the AFib? Well, so this is a, that's a fantastic question. Um, and this is sort of the double-edged sword, um, that we face with research. So, um, you know, we humans can't see electrical activity. So even if we, if we surgically opened up your chest and we looked at your heart, we can't see electrical activity. So we wouldn't be able to see the fibrillation. We wouldn't go, aha, now I can see it. It's not, you know, it's not that I just couldn't see it with electrodes, but we just literally can't see electrical activity. And for reasons that we can go into the tools that we have that we the the way we use electrodes to figure out these other abnormal heart rhythms and and where they're coming from and where to ablate them, those tools just don't work in atrial fibrillation. So, I would say that at this moment in time, we really have no way to map atrial fibrillation. So to date, no one's ever really made a map of human atrial fibrillation. <clears throat> so that obviously begs the question: Well, how do we know what AFib is? Um, and the answer is, we don't know for certain what atrial fibrillation is. And I think, um, I can tell you where our information comes from, but I think <clears throat> the answer really is going to turn out that AFib isn't one thing. And part of the complexity of trying to understand the literature, like, you know, well, this group did this procedure and it worked in, you know, 80% of patients, but then that group tried to repeat it and they got completely different results. What's going on? I think that 
what's going on is that we are inadequately defining atrial fibrillation. So we're calling anybody um, who has an irregular looking EKG atrial fibrillation as if it was the same thing. And then we're surprised when these people don't respond the same way to treatments because we're not looking at the right thing. We're not looking deeply enough to really know what their AFib is. So here's what we can do. Um, you can do research studying fibrillation in animal models, and it's been looked at in everything from turtles to, to horses. Um, and in those models, you have the advantage that you can gather a lot of information. You There's all sorts of techniques that you couldn't use in a human because, for example, some of them are, are incompatible with life. Some of them involve taking the heart out of the body. So you can gather a lot of information in these animal models. Um, and a lot of information is good, but the relevance of that information to human AFib is questionable because it's not human AFib. Typically, these animals don't have fibrillation. You don't just go out there and find the ones that have fib and then study them. You do something to alter their heart to make them have fib, and you always wonder whether the kind of fib you induced is different from the kind of fib that humans are having. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have, we have very, very limited and inadequate data in humans where the model is perfectly relevant, right? It's exactly what we want to know, AF in humans, but the data is so poor that we really don't know what's going on. Um, and kind of the, the thumbnail of the last 150 years of ablation research suggests that there are maybe three different types of mechanisms that can drive fib, very much different from each other. Um, they, for example, would suggest different types of treatments, um, depending upon which one's the right answer, quote unquote. And you could go to a meeting right now, or at least you could go to, could have gone to a meeting pre-COVID, and you'd hear, you know, the world's experts standing up on the podium, essentially shouting at the top of their lungs, arguing which one of those things is really what's happening in atrial, in human atrial fibrillation. And I think that the reason for the vociferous debate is because we don't know the answer. Like, if we're filling the the vacuum of actual information about human AFib with all of these arguments, um, but until we have a mapping system for human AFib, no one's really going to know the answer. Um, that doesn't mean that all is lost. I think that we can we can make use of what we've learned in animal models and and. There is also an enormous amount of information that we can use from computer simulations and computer modeling. Um, and what that does for you is it doesn't tell you directly what human AFib is, but it, it gives you like a playbook. So it's as if you, you can learn from those things. Well, look, I understand the lay of the land. You know, these types of properties of the heart will cause this type of electrical behavior. And and these type of properties will cause that type of electrical behavior. <clears throat> and with armed with that, as you go into humans and you make ever more detailed observations, you can say, oh, well, now I can sort of use my, my decoder book that I, use, that I developed in my research lab to say, oh, well, now that I know this about these underlying electrical properties, I suspect that this is what's going on with this guy's fibrillation. And... Um, <clears throat> And then I guess, you know, sort of a, the next chapter of our conversation can be about, you know, what are we doing differently? Why can we 
uh, or why do we believe that we can now actually measure FIB and figure out exactly where it's coming from in humans. But I believe that that's exactly what we've done. And when, um, when our development is complete, you know, I think for the first time, we'll be able to turn the lights on and really have a patient-specific understanding of the mechanisms of atrial fibrillation. And I strongly suspect that we'll find that there are more than one mechanism at play in, in maybe different places in the same patient at different times in, in um, the same patient and probably uh, differences between patients. Got it. And so it, when, when you do that, what, you know, what is, what is the immediate effect? Like when, when, like, how do you see the development of the company and how do you see this playing out? Cause to me, this is a game changer. If you know where to look and where to zap for lack of a better term, being the most layman of terms, it, it's, it, you know, it's a game changer for a lot of people. I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it really will be a game changer. And and frankly, I'd just like to say I'm encouraged about the likely success because, um, you know, technologic developments are not really an all or none phenomenon. Um, much like you hear Richard Dawkins talking about, you know, evolution of, say, the eyeball, that you you don't go from an animal that simply has no way to see anything to an animal, you know, like an eagle that can read the New York times at a hundred yards. Um, what you first do is you, you maybe stumble upon something that gives you the ability to see that towards my right, there's a, it's a little bit brighter and towards my left, it's a little bit darker and that's an advantage. You can do a little bit better and, and that evolves and gets a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And I think that that's what happens in medicine all the time. Um, right now, we sort of, the lights are off in terms of what's happening in atrial fibrillation. And I don't think that we're going to have a crystal clear and perfect picture of exactly what's happening electrically in every patient the day that Cormap, you know, hits the market, so to speak. Um, but I think we'll have a much better idea. And the good news is that, you know, it's, we already are able to have an impact on patients with ablation. So it's not that we have a 0% success rate. Let's say we have, in the worst cases, we have a 50% or a 40% success rate. Um, I think being able to detect that there's a little bit light over in this direction, not that direction, is going to improve upon that. And what I've seen you know, with my own eyes over the last 20 years is that um, a, a new technology comes along and it gets out there in the hands of smart physicians and it gets started, it starts being used in ways that the designer might not even have intended. Um, and, uh, you know, a new tool leads to a new under, a deeper understanding, which leads to an improvement in the tool and this, you know, symbiotic relationship between engineering and medicine, uh, sort of spirals ever upward. And I suspect that's what will happen here. Interesting. So, um, any any examples or just that you can think of offhand that, that where where it could take you? Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I I think that um, that right now there's an enormous number of patients um, that we just aren't ablating at all, um, and that's going to change with when Cormap comes around. So I think in order to do a better job answering your question, I have to give you a tiny bit more detail about what we do today. And, and maybe about what, what 
doctors agree on and what they don't agree on. So the big breakthrough um, that happened back in 1998 in Bordeaux was that they made a critical observation about how episodes of atrial fibrillation start. So I think you could characterize the situation around that time as follows. Once atrial fibrillation gets going, it's chaotic electrical activity. It's not a, there's not a specific spot that's the culprit. So there's no place to go and destroy some tissue, which is what ablation is, and fix the problem. It's too late. Horse is out of the barn. Um, but if we could figure out what it was that was starting episodes, what triggered an episode in the first place, and we could eliminate that thing, maybe we could, you know, we could kill the horse before it got out of the barn. Um, so um, the story, as I have heard it, is that these guys in Bordeaux were sitting, uh, effectively, this is, uh, this is a dramatization of the story, but effectively sitting on what's called the telemetry ward, where you know patients have a little heart monitor on, and at the nursing station, there's all these oscilloscopes, and you can look at everybody's EKGs. Um, and they were watching, <clears throat> they were watching this, and what they saw was a patient who had intermittent episodes of fib, and they were looking at the rhythm when the fib was normal rhythm, not fib. And the patient had what we call PACs or skip beats. So, so you see, all of a sudden there was. Um, uh, normal beat, normal beat, normal beat, extra beat, normal beat, normal beat, normal beat, extra beat. And um, one of the things that's incredible about these guys in Bordeaux is that they're very astute observers, uh, certainly much more so than me. Um, and what they noticed was that these skip beats had the same exact shape on the monitor, one to the other. And the the importance of shape, what shape tells you in EKG is um, it tells you where something's coming from. So if you know, if I excite the heart from the left to the right, I have, I have a, an upward blip like the letter N on my EKG. And if I go from the right to the left, I have a downward blip like the letter U on my EKG. And so if you see the exact same shape on your EKG time and time again, it's telling you that that beat was coming from the same place time and time again. And this caught their interest because... That's not what you would think would happen in atrial fibrillation, at least in 1998. What we expected is that these beats are coming from all over the place. That's the whole problem with fib. They're coming from everywhere, not a specific spot. That's why we couldn't target them and ablate them. So they kept staring at this, and then they saw an initiation of an episode of fib. And what they noticed was it started with a series of early beats. Instead of beep, 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 skip, it was beep, beep, skip, 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 and poof off into atrial fibrillation. And they noticed that the shape of each of those um, excitations was identical to, to those earlier individual skip beats, suggesting that there was a specific place that was starting episodes of fibrillation. So they, based upon that observation, they took patients down to the EP lab, they put wires into the heart, and they started hunting, looking for where are these beats coming from, and what they ultimately found is that the beats are generally coming from a place called the pulmonary veins, which is where blood from the lungs gets drained into the heart. <clears throat> There's a little sleeve of musculature that goes up into those veins. And it's that tissue and that musculature that develops, for some reason, this capacity to have spontaneous bursts of electrical activity. 
And it's that that's initiating episodes of FIB. That was the key insight that these guys had back then. <clears throat> and at first we started, we, the, you know, the, the group of us that were doing this in the beginning, um, started by them, were going into the veins, finding where these things were coming from specifically and ablating and trying to kill that site. And it evolved into um, the assumption that any tissue inside the pulmonary veins was potentially, uh, could could trigger an episode of fibrillation. So rather than going in there and hunting and pecking and killing every little spot that might fire, um, we started doing what's called pulmonary vein isolation. So you create a circle of scar tissue, a circle of ablation around the opening of the vein inside the atrium. And that causes essentially an electrical wall. So you can do all the firing you want in the pulmonary vein. The waves can't get into the atrium, so they can't trigger AFib in the first place. And that was the dawn of the era of the modern era of AF ablation. And, and sort of to the return to the what everybody agrees on and what people don't agree on and what our problem is right now, that story I just told you means that, you know, one of the, one of the things that made it so powerful is it means that you don't have to make electrical measurements in people's hearts. Once they made this fundamental observation, we know you know, I can tell you about the patient I'm going to ablate next Monday. You know, we're going to go in there and we're going to isolate their pulmonary veins. We're going to use anatomy to guide us, nothing about electricity. And we're going to do the same thing in everybody. And that does a pretty good job. That's what fixes about 85% of people with early AFib. The problem is that as AFib progresses and episodes start lasting longer and longer and longer, it's because there's progressive changes in the electrical activity in the chamber itself. And the problem becomes not simply that episodes start and removing triggers will solve the problem, but that episodes won't stop once they get going. So once FIB progresses, pulmonary vein isolation alone is insufficient. It's, I think, necessary, but insufficient to cure their FIB. And that's pretty much where the agreement in the field comes to an end. And there's much vociferous debate about uh, there's much agreement about the fact that we need to do something more than pulmonary vein isolation in, in this group of more advanced disease patients, but there isn't any agreement about what that something should be. And this is what CORMAP is aiming at doing. It's CORMAP is aiming at saying, all right, I'm going to turn the lights on. And so now we have a rational way of saying, we need to ablate here and here, and I'll tell you why. Um, so, so hearkening back to your question of like an hour and a half ago, uh, I think that's what will sort of change when um, Cormat hits the hospital. Excellent. Um, and what is the process towards, towards getting, and well, you know, I mean, you're talking about a couple of years, I think of development at this point, right? And is it, is it, are, are you comfortable talking a little bit more about the technology of, of kind of, 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 and, and how, how exact you can see things compared to today's technology, what kind of step function better it is? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, early on, we started trying to figure out why what we're doing to map all these other rhythms doesn't work in atrial fibrillation. And it was, you know, pretty quickly, we realized that there were two main problems. One problem is that, um, you know, sort of a garbage in, garbage out problem. We, it's this uh, thing we discussed early on about what's called fractionated 
signals, refractionated electrograms is what the signals are called. Um, and instead of having you know, like a flat baseline and then a spike and a flat baseline and a spike, and those spikes guide us and say, okay, this is the moment that a wave went past my electrode. This is the moment that a wave went past my electrode. You have this very ambiguous signal where you have no idea because the spikes are all the time. Um, and so you just can't piece together a picture of what's going on in the heart. Actually, it's probably a good time for me to take a step back and explain how we normally make a map. Um, so what, what you do is you, you put an electrode inside the heart, and um, when a wave goes past your electrode, you see one of these blips, and you go, okay, a wave just went past here. And now I'm going to move my electrode a little bit to the right, and let's say the wave goes past about five milliseconds later. I say, okay, well, it went from the first place to the second place, and it took five milliseconds. And you keep going around and say, you know, what's the time of activation here? What's the time of activation here? Um, and you build up like a paint by numbers type of picture that ultimately is showing you how electricity spread through the heart. And by looking at that, you can deduce, um, whether it, you know, was, a you know, a crazy pacemaker cell that's driving the heart and it's waves are spreading like, you know, uh, ripples from a pebble in a pond all out from one spot, or it's a circle of electricity where, Waves are going around and round and round over and over and over again, and each of these things happen. But fundamentally, we discover this by doing what's called sequential mapping, meaning we look at the data here, and then we look at the data there and there. So we build up this paint by numbers, one number at a time, over many, 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 many beats. So we're creating a picture that looks kind of like a single beat, but we're cheating. We're doing it over many beats, and the reason we're able to cheat is because with organized rhythms, the ones that we are actually able to map, we can cheat because this, the activation is the same beat after beat after beat. It's the same tomorrow as it was today. It's the same in half an hour as it is now. Um, so you leave one electrode in, in a fixed position and you say, how much later is this spot from that spot? And you move around, and you keep comparing the timing of your, your electrode that's moving with the timing of your electrode that's standing still and piece together this puzzle. So the two problems with mapping a fib are one that we don't even get the what's called local activation time data because of the fractionation we can't say oh this is the moment that a wave went past my electrode and our electrode design which improves spatial resolution solves that problem and you can't say ah this is the moment that a wave went by but you're still faced with this second problem which is i need to put enough numbers on my paint by numbers um, chart so that i can figure out what this picture looks like and the, the, this is where the next problem with AFib comes in, and that is it's a chaotic rhythm where it's not just one wave and it's not just doing the same thing over and over and over again. You can have many, many, many waves simultaneously spreading in different regions of the heart and never traveling in the same direction twice. So it is not true that the beat, the next beat is going to be just like this beat and the beat 10 beats from now is going to be just like that beat. Um, so you can't do sequential mapping. So you have to do what's called multi-site simultaneous mapping. You have to look everywhere at once. And that means you have to put lots and lots and lots of electrodes in the heart to record everywhere at once. And you just can't put that many electrodes in the heart. So I mean, you might need a thousand electrodes and we can put in, you know, maybe a hundred electrodes. Um, so <clears throat> we needed, once we solved the spatial resolution problem, we got rid of these fractionated signals. We needed to figure out how we could solve what I call the sample density problem meaning how are we going to get 
enough information without being able to put thousands of electrodes into the heart at one time? And the answer is that we're making an entirely different kind of map. This is another thing I think that CoreMap brings to the table that's new. The maps that I've just described, the paint-by-numbers maps, are what are called activation maps. It's saying activation was here, and then it was here, and then it was there. Um, and that, because activation is changing from beat to beat, has to be done simultaneously. Um, we started out with the assumption <clears throat> that we're not going to be able to do that, that in order to get enough data, we're going to have to be able to figure out some way that we can do sequential mapping so that we could say, take 100 electrodes and move them around 100 times and get you know 10,000 data points. Um, and so, well, why can't we do that with activation mapping? Because activation changes from B to B. So if we want to do sequential mapping, it means we have to think of, find something that isn't changing from B to B during atrial fibrillation, but the distribution of that something needs to be the same as the distribution of the drivers of FIB. Um, I'll give you an analogy um, to make this a little bit more clear. Imagine that you wanted to figure out how water, where water is distributed on some irregularly shaped surface, but you're blind to water. You don't have a water detector, and how are you going to map the water? Well, because you understand something about how water works and gravity works, you know that any water that lands on this surface is going to travel downhill until it gets to a low spot, um, and it's going to pool in that low spot. And it's not that everything goes all the way down to the bottom of the hill, because you can have little dips and valleys farther up the hill. So it's just a local low spot where, you know, the, the surface went down and then went up again. This is why you can have a lake at the top of a mountain. Um, so if you had an altimeter and not a water meter, you could say, what's the altitude here? And then move to the next spot. What's the altitude here? And step-by-step step, walk over the landscape and make a topologic map. Um, and that topologic map would tell you where the water is going to be, even though you never measured the water. And the analogs of this in AFib mapping is we want to know where the drivers of FIB are. That's the water. And um, the surface, the local low spots, where, which is where those drivers, that water will collect, um, is identified by a specific electrical property called the wavelength. And... So we need to measure wavelength, and if we measure wavelength, we can make a sequential map, and we can get as many data points as we want, regardless of how many electrodes we put in the heart. And it turns out that if you want to make a wavelength map, the thing you need is a super high-resolution electrode, which is the very thing that we design. So the combination of measuring tissue wavelength with high-resolution electrodes allows you to overcome the... Um, the garbage in, garbage out problem of fractionation, and it allows you to get over the the preclusion against sequential mapping of changing activation sequence. Um, and the two are an incredibly powerful combination. And that fundamentally is the core map innovation or set of innovations. Very cool. So of of the 33 million, how, how many are in the US, give or take? I think... Six million-ish. Well, we have, we have a monopoly on all the modern ailments. Um, it's our healthy lifestyle. I know we're not 18, 20% of the global population. I guess we're that far off. But um, 
And and how many people do you think this would make eligible? Well, I you know I think that uh, I guess fundamentally I don't know the answer to that question yet. We won't know until we've made it and we start mapping people. But my guess is that the way this will play out is that um, there are some of those patients are so electrically deranged. They've, they've, they're so far down the road that even if we can identify, you know, what's the landscape and where the drivers are, they would require such extensive ablation to fix that, that it's not safe and might not be effective, right? I also think that there's going to be some percentage of patients that, that aren't eligible for an ablation for other reasons. They're too sick. They're too frail. There's something else that prevents them from having the procedure. So certainly it won't be everybody. But, you know, the fact that we're ablating only 1% of the population right now means I think we're going to have, you know, an extremely large increase. You know, it's got to be at least a tenfold increase in the number of patients that are eligible. So, um, and I think that's probably a conservative estimate, but we'll be able to reach, you know, 10 times the number of patients that we can reach today at a minimum is my guess. And and the other options for people would are medication and or pacemaker, correct? Yeah, sort of. So um, uh, it's a common uh, belief that pacemakers are a treatment for atrial fibrillation, um, which isn't quite true. You know, effectively, pills or ablation can make the heart go slower when it's going fast, and fib is the heart going too fast. Um, yep. But a pacemaker only makes the heart go faster. So if your problem is your heart's going too slow, that's what a pacemaker solves. But it can't make it go slower. Um, so it's not that a pacemaker fixes AFib, but um, what we sometimes do is when all else fails, um, atrial fibrillation is called atrial fibrillation, not just fibrillation, because this is an abnormal rhythm that's in the atria, the top chambers of the heart. The business end of your heart that's really doing the pumping that's responsible for your blood pressure is the bottom chambers, the ventricles. And luckily for all of us, the bottom chambers and the top chambers are electrically disconnected, except for one sort of biological wire, um, sort of like a nerve fiber that connects the two. So fibrillation in the atrium does not become directly fibrillation in the ventricle, but it sends very, very many beats down to the bottom chamber. So the bottom chamber beats quickly, and that makes people feel poorly drops their blood pressure, et cetera. So in fibrillation, to give you a feel for it, your atria are beating probably four to 600 times a minute. And if you're completely untreated, your ventricles, the bottom chambers are really, if you feel your pulse, it's maybe 180, 190, 200 beats a minute, but not four to 600 beats a minute. That's because this little electrical wire has sort of a circuit breaker in it that will only let us so many beats through. So our sort of last-ditch approach to patients where we just can't make their fib stop is we do a different kind of ablation where we destroy that electrical connection between the top and bottom called an AV node ablation. It's like snipping that wire. Now there's nothing connecting the two. The fib can't make the bottom chambers beat quickly, but then there's nothing to tell the bottom chambers to beat because the reason the two chambers are connected is because the normal pacemaker cells in the heart um, that's what's working in you and me right now are in the top chamber and the wave from the pacemaker gets to the bottom chamber through this wire. So if you snip this connection, there's nothing to drive the bottom chambers. And that's why you have to put a pacemaker in. And now the pacemaker, this artificial electronic pacemaker, is what drives the heart. Um, so it's not really curing fib. Those patients are still in atrial fibrillation. Okay. Well, um, 
this this has been fascinating. A lot a lot more science than 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 I thought, but it's it's awesome actually, for, at least for me. <laughs> um, uh, anything else that 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 you want to discuss today? I mean, I'd love to have you back six months from now or something as things develop and. Uh, I, I mean, I know, I know just on a, on a professional level outside of this podcast is, is that we'll be talking, uh, for obvious reasons, as I stated at the beginning, I'm an investor, but is there anything that you, you, you want to add at this point? No, I don't think there's anything in particular I'd add to the story. And in fact, I'll, I'll apologize to our listeners for most of the things I said this time, <laughs> but, um, but it is, you know, it's a fundamentally, it's a, it's a complex problem and complex problems require complex solutions. So you either have an extremely superficial conversation about it, or you're sort of stuck delving into the details the way we just did. Uh, I think, you know, an interesting story for another day is, you know, kind of the relationship between science uh, and a science project and, um, you know, kind of the real commercial realities of the world and how you make something in the real world, how you go from an idea to a physical thing that you can use in patients in the hospital. And that's an enormously complex and multifaceted process. That That's fairly fascinating. I think I, I actually be very, very interesting separate conversation that I, I would be, you know, I, that's kind of what I do is try to help these technologies become full-blown companies that actually cross that chasm into revenue producing and ultimately profitable entities. So uh, that, that actually do good at the same time. So thank yeah, you for well, the time. You're, you're very welcome. Um, yeah, no, I think just to, to sort of finish that point that, um, you know, the idea while critical is never going to fix anybody, you know, until you've done the, the, the whole thing and really made something in the real world, um, you're not going to help anybody. And the reality is that um, that won't happen if it is um, commercially unsuccessful. It, you know, the tool won't still be out there if it's commercially unsuccessful. So you, you know, it, it just has to be um, both medically and commercially successful, or you still don't have a cure. Well, I'm certainly made that bet that that you and the group and the gang and however I can support you will we'll make that commercially available because I know my father could have used it and I know a bunch of other people that can use it. So I hope it happens sooner than later. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care.